Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. The title of today's message is The Anger of the Lord. Follow along as I read the holy and God-inspired word. Starting in verse 1 of Mark 3, it reads, He entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Father, we come to a a very humbling passage. Through your gospel writer, you, you have shown us these great points of contention. Jesus, when you came, you no doubt was desiring to to bring the redemptive plan of God, but you were also looking to set hearts straight, oftentimes calling them out. We hear about your anger in this passage. We hear your compassion as you grieved. And we listen to your rebuke. Spirit, I pray that you will teach our souls this morning. May we may not be like the Pharisees. Pray that you be with your preacher. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We have in these verses before us the only place in the New Testament 
where it explicitly states that Jesus became angry. Certainly, we have other instances in the Gospels where his righteous anger was clearly seen. I think of two separate occasions on two different Passovers, separated by three years, where Jesus enters the temple and saw that his father's house had become a den for thieves. He responded by making a whip and clearing the temple, turning tables and rebuking their hearts. What they did in making his father's house a place of thievery, Jesus and in righteous anger cleaned house. Why? For the father's glory. For they had corrupted the house of the living God and his anger was entirely justified and without sin. On another occasion, Jesus confronted the self-righteous Pharisees and spoke with righteous wrath. He said in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And yet, on another occasion, Jesus saw their hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, he addressed the Pharisees by giving them eight woes of condemnation. That section of scripture is the most scathing rebuke of the religious leaders of that day. He said in Matthew 23, 13 and 14 and 15, by unleashing his righteous anger and calling a spade a spade and revealing their hearts by saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 16, he says, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you fools and blind men. Verse 26, again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. Verse 33, you serpents, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? There were several instances where Jesus rightly displayed his righteous anger. And so the question is, what invokes such righteous anger? Why did he become so angry? And what should cause us to be so angry in a righteous way without sinning? In each of these occasions, we see the pure, holy anger of the Almighty God reacting with a righteous anger. This instance in Mark chapter 3 is one of those times. It is the only place like where in, in verse 5 says that Jesus was angry. And what's interesting is that Jesus never became angry at non-religious people. Do you notice that? He never became angry at non-religious people. However, the religious establishment of the day, his righteous angry, anger excuse me, was unleashed. But to the tax collector? No. 
to the harlot? No. But to the Pharisees and the scribes? Yes. That comparison is pretty remarkable when you, when you think about it. Jesus reached out to the sinner with compassion and with truth. But what made his blood boil was the sin of religious hypocrisy. I think we understand that word hypocrisy. Literally in the Greek, it's, it's, it's playing a part, it's acting. It's being something that you are not. It would be those who, who play church and truly aren't saved. Why? Because they trample on the holy and sacred things of God. These individuals, they have a form of godliness on the outside, but inside they are far from him. These are those who harden their hearts when exposed to God's word. Ignore the truth for some kind of self-righteous benefit. There are those who play fast and loose with the scriptures, those who corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who, who made up their legalistic man-made rules these Pharisees, these scribes, they, they would defend them over what is right, over what is true, and what is good. They defamed the glory of God. It was these things, beloved, that provoked the righteous anger of our Lord. And what we learn from this is that it would be better to be an outright sinner, far away from God, in the slop of life, than to be filled with hypocrisy and playing the game with God. It would be better for you to be a tax collector and a harlot than to be a scribe or a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, Jesus makes this statement, this comparison to the chief priest in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 to 32, up on the screen is that section of scriptures. Look as I read it, it says, but what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and, this, and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will, did the will of his father? Of course, they said the first. And Jesus said of them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John, speaking of John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did, did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. 
It's not that these tax collectors and prostitutes kept in their ways. You notice what, what Jesus says, they believed in the Savior. And their lives were changed. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they dismissed them. You apply that to our own lives, our own situation, even in this day and age. What causes Jesus to be angry today with those who are in the church? Which, by the way, he is the head of. He is angry towards those who know the truth. And they harden their heart to it. Those who know the truth and live like a hypocrite. Those who play church and and defame the glory of God and make a mockery in how they live out God's word. This is what causes the righteous anger of the Lord to flare. It is my desire to to encourage you this morning, but the, the heaviness of this response to the Pharisees and the scribes is is something that our hearts need to hear. My encouragement to you is by this, that if you're here today and you have played the role of the sinner and you know that you're a sinner, the patience and the mercy of God is extended to you. It's offered to you through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Jesus said in John 4, verse 13 and 14, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Isaiah 118 says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's exactly what Jesus does into the life of a sinner. You think about the gospel and the gospels, this this invitation for a sinner to be saved. This invitation of of the Savior to the sinner goes out far and wide. And he invites sinners to to come to him, which, by the way, all of us are. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he gives, grace, forgiveness, peace, eternal life. And so before we dive into the text, if you're far away from God, understand this morning that Jesus offers grace and forgiveness. The beautiful thing about it, he will not chastise you. He he understands that you are a sinner. So much so that he went to the cross and spelled his blood for you to atone for your sins. And for those who are hypocrites this morning, those who are are playing church. According to our text, Jesus is going to play hardball with you. 
He's going to go after your heart. He's going to convict your soul. And he wants you to repent. And he wants you to understand the, the significance of what he brings. So today, I want us to see the anger. The righteous anger of the Lord as he challenges the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes and exerts his authority in this last confrontation of a running list of five that Mark strings together for us. So what was the incident? We see this in verses 1 through 3. This is, of course, another Sabbath incident where people were gathered. The Pharisees and scribes are there. Jesus and his disciples are there. Remember, we already seen in, in chapter 2, verse 28, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The issue there we saw was about his disciples working or reaping the grain, thus violating the legalistic law of the Pharisees. Of course, by them doing that touched a nerve. It violated the Pharisees' legalistic law as they determined and defined what work was to be like on the Sabbath. Yet if you remember that sermon, Jesus says, listen, you missed the point. You missed the point of the Sabbath. And that people are, are far greater than, than any law or ritual. And that their needs are far more important than any legalistic man-made law. And so we approach our, our passage. It reads in verse 1, he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. Again, you, you sense the, the tension, no doubt. We know that Jesus is going to do what is right. He always did. And he enters a Jewish synagogue. There in his midst was, was a man whose hand was withered. Literally in the Greek, his hand was deformed. We had no idea how he became deformed. He might have been born by this. He might have lived life a little bit and maybe had some paralysis somewhere in the road, down the road. All we know is that he has no function of his hand. Verse 2, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Also, Mark doesn't identify who the they are in this verse, but you and I both know near context what we saw in, in, in Mark chapter 2, it was the Pharisees, and what we see in verse 6, it was the Pharisees. The parallel passage in Luke 6 clearly points to them and calls them out as the Pharisees. So here we go again. Jesus enters the synagogue. A man with a deformed hand was present, and it was the Sabbath day. It was the perfect storm for conflict. So much so 
the purpose clause of verse 2 revealed the hearts of the Pharisees. If you look at the end of verse 2, their heart was so that they might accuse him. They were watching him. It wasn't a casual look. This wasn't one of these things where they just showed up and then by chance Jesus walked in and then they said, oh, well, let's see what he's going to do today. No, they were looking for a situation where they could accuse him. The word watching here in the Greek conveys watching with an intent purpose. It's as if they were taking notes to see if he will heal this man or not. Now, what's interesting to me is when you think about the Mishnah and the rabbis and how they determine what was work on the Sabbath and trying to obey the fourth commandment, they had exceptions. They had exceptions on the Sabbath day. They had exceptions for medical intervention on the Sabbath day. One, if, if a woman was about ready to give birth, they wisely understood you deliver. Circumcision, if it was time to do that, they allowed it because it was a, a sacred act in their eyes and not violating or profaning the Sabbath. Why? Because God gave them a sign of the covenant. So they had their exceptions. But as Jesus often does, he reveals in his omniscience the hearts of those who pursue him wrongly. And so here's the kicker. Since the man whose withered hand was not life-threatening, the Pharisees would consider such an action by Jesus to heal or help him as violating the Sabbath according to their legalistic rules. Now, it's important to know many months ago when we studied Mark chapter 1, there was already two healings on the Sabbath day. Do you remember those? Remember the double healing of Jesus? In Mark 1.21 and following, that day in Capernaum where he cast out a, a demon possessed, a, a demon out of a man in the synagogue, only to follow that up as he went to Peter's house where his mother-in-law was there and she wasn't feeling well and he healed her on the Sabbath day. It's interesting. the reasoning behind why didn't they get excited about those times. Some scholars believe that the demon-possessed man was life-threatening. And for Jesus to cast him out was getting his life back. And when it came to Peter's mother-in-law, it was out of the public eye. But if anything, you can't keep those things silent, can you? You talk about news spreading about the power and authority of Jesus to cast out a demon and to heal. Word got out. The Pharisees knew this. Jesus was pushing back against them. 
could be that those were the, the events, or at least some of them, that, that caused the Pharisees to, to kind of trap Jesus. In any case, I think what's interesting, when you, when you just sit back and look at some of this, there's great irony here. And throughout this passage, think with me on this. By seeking to trap Jesus in the healing of a man deformed to allow it to become well and functional, the Pharisees acknowledge that Jesus does heal, that he performed miracles. And though they fall short of calling him divine, calling him God, they understood at least that God often used his prophets to display his divine healing and point to the reality that he is from God. They have a, a whole history of God doing and moving and, and showing his hand. In all their national existence, God performed miracle after miracle. And these religious leaders knew that those men were from God. However, they refused believe that Jesus could be that one. I think it makes sense to us, even when we took a, a little bit of time looking at the legalist, legalistic nature of, of, of people's hearts. Boy, that sounded like I broke. Yeah. Trust me, I went through puberty. I'm... Boy, squeaking a little bit. But often, when with legalistic tendencies, you are so enamored with your own self that you miss the point. You miss the heart of what Jesus is doing here. And clearly what Jesus is doing here is good. That's the other irony. You think about it. You think of what, when we get to verse 6, they were going to, on the Sabbath day, plot how to kill Jesus. And Jesus goes to the, the synagogue, and he's there to do what? To do good. To heal a man with a withered hand. And so then in verse 3, it reads, He, Jesus, said to the man with the weather hand, Get up and come forward. Jesus makes this man with the weather hand stand up in front of the crowd. He wants everybody to have a front row seat on what he's going to do here. And from the Pharisees' perspective, they're licking their chops. The trap is set. Will Jesus show his divine healing and thus the Pharisees can catch him violating the Sabbath law? Mark points out the anger of Christ. Verse 4, it tells us, and he said to them, it, and that them, I mean, he's addressing the Pharisees' hearts. In this crowd, he's got the man standing up, 
And he said to them, he's using his omniscience here, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Jesus makes this man stand up, come forward, and turn. He turns his attention to the hearts of the Pharisees. It's as if the snakes got caught. Jesus is playing his divine omniscience, knowing that what was in the heart of the Pharisees, and he calls them out. He asks them a question that's two parts. He asks them first, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? I mean, he's going straight to their, to their, to their motives. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath day or wrong to do evil on the Sabbath day? And of course, the answer is simple. The call is to do good. The Pharisees would, would lose that battle. Of course, the other people may, might not know their, their intentions or their plot. But by the way, remember in the redemptive plan of God, all of this was a part of it. God is still sovereign over all of this. And of course, he's going to use the Pharisees eventually, in their evil schemes to bring forth the greatest grace that man will ever receive. Jesus is in sovereign control here. He knows their actions. He knows their thoughts even before they do. And so why Jesus is preparing to do good and perform a miracle and heal a man's unusable weathered hand, the Pharisees on the Sabbath day will plot to kill Christ. And so what was the response? They kept silent. I think that's very interesting to me. If anything, this was the opportune time that when Jesus heals this man, for them to stand up and say, you are guilty. I think to some degree, and this is reading outside of the pages of the scriptures, I think to some degree they realized that, you know what, we're not going to get a gathering here. Because he's doing something good. What's interesting to me in those days, in the Greek-Roman days, silence of an opponent was a way of shaming them. And for that matter, for them to speak up would be foolish, for the people would already have formed the perception that Jesus was right and they were wrong. And so, verse 5, after looking around at them, looking at the Pharisees with anger, you talk about tension as he scanned the crowd and looked into their eyes. Scripture says he did so with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Greek word for, for anger here is orge. It has the idea of intense anger. I don't know about you. I mean, if you can see the righteous anger of the Lord, I mean, you, you would be melted, right? We have one child in our family that all Shree and I had to do was give them that look. And they repented and confessed all their sins. 
wasn't the case here for the Pharisees. Again, this isn't sinful anger. If it was sinful, he could not be Savior. This is a righteous anger of Christ. And it focuses on, did you notice there, the hardness of their heart, their hypocrisy. And because of the hardness of their hearts, he was grieved. That word for grief or grieved there means that he was totally disappointed. It's as if Jesus is shaking his head in disgust. Pretty much calling them out as fools. What's interesting to me in the studying of this, the hardness of heart is a Hebrew idiom. It's an expression that means that the Pharisees' hearts were, were spiritually blind. Or get this, actively in resistance to the things of God's will. That's exactly what a, a hardened heart does. Let me give you one example. We see this used in Exodus 4.21. There are many. Exodus 4.21, where it says, The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You and I both know the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, already hard heart, was used to display God's glory, right? To not let God's people go because of this hardened his heart meant that Pharaoh was opposing God and his will. Of course, you and I both know who won out, right? Not Pharaoh. Nor you if you oppose him. Added that, the, the heart was the seat of emotions. We, we, we understand that, that we have this understanding from, you know, from within Jesus calls them out and says, your heart is hardened. And just like pouring salt in a wound, Jesus turns his attention to the man and says, I'm going to show him. No pride here. He's, remember, he's doing what is right, what is good, what is holy. He's showing his divine nature and character. He's showing compassion He turns his attention to the man with the withered hand and said, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out and his hand was restored. He heals on the Sabbath. He does good on the Sabbath. The idea of the, the word restored here means to bring back to original use. That which was unuseful now can be used in its original function. The man was healed before Everybody. Now the ball's in the Pharisees' court. What are they going to do? Well, the insurrection, verse 6, they seek to kill Jesus. Instead of rejoicing, can you imagine having a deformity healed? What that brought, the excitement to your own soul? The opportunities that it would open up for them? 
No doubt the people were rejoicing around him. Notice that the Pharisees didn't join the rejoicing. Matter of fact, verse 6 tells us the Pharisees went out and immediately been, began conspiring, uh, conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Can you see it? They, they probably, in disgust, got up, walked out of the synagogue, and the evil that was in their hearts they began to conspire with the Herodians, which is pretty odd here, as to how they might destroy him. The word conspire has the idea of making a plan, putting a pen to paper. And they were discussing how to get rid of him. How to kill him. Why? Because he healed the man on the Sabbath day? I mean, you think about foolishness. Instead of thinking probably this guy might be the Messiah, we need to have further evidence that this is the case. Evil burned in their heart. And you know exactly why. They were threatened by Christ. The people loved him. He showed them compassion. He wasn't like the Pharisees and the scribes. He didn't have his nose stuck up in the air. He didn't have his law book writing tickets when people violated the law. Not Christ. Pharisees did. Now, immediately, we'll use that word. Your Berean mind would ask the question of verse 6, who are these Herodians, right? And why are they there? Why are they there scheming with the Pharisees? They seem to be an odd sect, and they are. To get some of those answers, we know that the Herodians appear only twice in the New Testament. Here in Mark 3, in the parallel passage in Matthew 22, and also they'll show up again in Mark chapter 12, where during the Passion Week, they again show up with their pen and paper as a plan to destroy Christ. These were two opposite groups. The Herodians were supporters of the Herodian dynasty, established by Herod the Great, and now carried forward by, by Herod's sons. They desired for, for Herod's reign to carry through, and get this, any threat they desired to kill. If they felt that their authority, their position was going to be compromised, they took them out. They were pro-Roman. And when they... King Herod had rule over the Jews. They had Roman troops to support their power and their command. That was the Herodians. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were, were anti-Roman, right? They were looking for the Messiah. 
They were looking from the lineage of David, looking for God to show the Messiah. Why? Because they wanted to overthrow the Romans. But here they are in cahoots to kill Christ. I think what's remarkable about this, we, we, we can grab our, our information about this, but let me give you a better picture of this. Let me help you put the pieces together. In your scriptures, you know that Herod the Great was the one of the central figures in the incarnation of Christ. Remember that? He was the one who sent out the Magi and asked them to come back and tell him where this Christ child was. Why? So that he could kill them. The Magi didn't return, Scripture tells us. And so he unleashes a slaughter to kill all babies in Bethlehem and in the near vicinity from two years and under. With that type of heart passed on to his sons, you can see why the Herodians were there to conspire to kill Christ. I mean, it's just a sad testimony of a hardened heart that doesn't desire the things of godliness. Let me jump forward. What's our takeaway from this? I want to give you three. There's many more. But I think there's three that are sufficient enough to, to allow the Spirit and the truth to sift our hearts as we walk out of this place. On the one side, I think it's easy for us to look at the situation and, and identify with the Pharisees. I think it's easy for us to do that. I think it's easy for us to be legalistic and saying that somebody doesn't fit the mold. These Pharisees who had no grace, who missed the point of the scriptures, applying their legalistic rules to others. Let me just simply say this, stop being a Pharisee. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to have a hardened heart for the things of Christ. You don't want to have a hardened heart for the things and the purposes and the plans of the Lord. If anything, we need to do just the opposite of what the Pharisees did. And we need to do what Jesus did. We need to extend the grace and mercy of the Lord, especially those who have been trampled down in society those who need to be rescued, those who need to be cared for and allow God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and His peace to snatch them out of this dark world. I mean, when you think about that, it shouldn't surprise you that sinners are going to sin, Right? So keep your rocks in your pocket and give them Jesus. And by the way, the reason why we give them Jesus is because there's no sin greater than his grace. Amen? By the way, if you are here thinking that, you know what, I like my Christianity... I like it when it comes to having it all nice and tight with a set of rules. 
Listen, I think the, the charge in the scriptures is that, listen, God's wrath is upon such a person. Those who malign the word of God, those who are wolves in the, in, in the church, those who cause dissension in the church. Jesus said there, that there would be wolves amongst us. some degree, we just don't let them mull around. The beautiful thing about it is that the discernment of the, of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord, it, it, those guys, they, they, they don't last very long within a body. So what they do, they start their own ministries. And they have a TV program. They have no accountability, and they go after sheep. It's a reason why we defend the hope that's inside of us, that where we stand and defend the doctrine of the scriptures. And just like we would call any sinner to repent, we call the wolf to repent. If not, you kick him to the curb. I think simply put, we must have compassion, patience, forgiveness, love, and grace towards sinners and towards those who are modern-day modern Pharisees. We need to have righteous anger. That's our first takeaway. Second, and this is mostly for those who are maybe not even here this morning, but maybe they trickled in. But let me say it this way. Do not judge Christianity because of the hypocrisy of some sheep within the church. There are always those, and you probably had these conversations with individuals, they give you the reason why they don't go to church where Christ is proclaimed is because that hypocrite goes to your church. I think you and I both know that we can easily spot a hypocrite. The errors of their ways are easy to see. And often what happens is that those type of people who see the hypocrisy of some people in the church choose to never go back to church thinking that is Christ and that is Christianity. Can I say it this way to you? Just straightforward. You can either go to church with a few of those hypocrites, or you can spend eternity in hell with all of them. I don't know about you, but that choice is easy. I'd rather go to church with a few hypocrites than not go to church and spend eternity in hell. I think our second takeaway is this. Do not judge Christ and Christianity through the eyes of the Pharisees. I mean, he rebukes them, rebukes them, tells them that they're not going to heaven. I think they are the ones who are the tares amongst the wheat. I think they are the ones who are the goats amongst the sheep. 
hypocrisy, the danger of it. And by the way, if, if you know somebody who's live, or playing the game, out of love, come alongside them with compassion, with truth, with a desire to see them, to see the error of their ways and understand the, the nature of the salvation that Christ gives. It's foolish for us to come to church and say, you know what, I just don't want to sit by that guy or that gal. Instead of sitting by them, praying for them, and calling them to do what is right according to the Scriptures. Number three, our third takeaway. I think it's simple to say that when you think about the Sabbath... And for that matter, any day, do you not see that Christ desires to do good always? I mean, this reminds me of Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things for good. And when you think about that truth in itself, knowing that God will always do good, you would be a fool to hold back your life and not give it to the Lord. I mean, I think we can stand up here day after day and tell us about testimonies about the goodness of our Lord. Each one of us has that testimony of the things that he has done. You would be a fool not to give your life Christ. Why? Because he is sufficient. He's full of grace, able to carry your burdens, to protect you, to give you eternal life, to do good for you. I mean, the gospel continues to come forth. We, we interact with Christ in these gospels, and all we can see is, is this gospel that, that Christ has come to save sinners, to, tr to transform them, to redeem them, to save them. And the way that happens is, is that you just need to repent, which means turning of your mind, recognizing that God is right. I am a sinner and I need grace. I need a savior. Oh, by the way, here's Christ who went to the cross and atoned for your sins. Here is my gift to you. Receive him in faith. That's the simplicity of receiving this gospel. If you would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, listen, he will save you. I have that much confidence in Christ. Why? Because there was a day and a moment in my life where I repented and believed and I was changed. Listen, if you refuse this grace, this mercy... You are on a track to be much like the Pharisees, where in the end, there's eternal hell. Jesus was a straight shooter, and we must be as well. 
The reality of that truth alone humbles us to love people all the more and give them Christ. The question is, will you do it? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. The humbling truth that you have brought forth, your rebuke, our righteous anger towards the Pharisees, the hardness of their heart to protect a system And Lord, you, you destroyed it all in one act with a question that exposed their evil. We understand the, the redemptive plan of God, that that had to happen. We know that there was going to be set in motion a hatred towards you to get you to the cross, to accuse you falsely and wrongly. But we also know the devastation of a heart to get there, to hate the things of God, even though they think that they are godly. I pray for our hearts this morning, Father. As we receive the word and the spirit is using that, you know exactly, Holy Spirit, where each heart lands. When it comes to receiving or rejecting Christ. Of course, the power of your grace and mercy and your display of, of forgiveness and atonement can be extended to those who receive you. Father, draw them. Help them to see the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. That this is their only answer when it comes to heaven or to hell for eternity. And may you do your work and save. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ who has given us life, given us hope, who has brought us redemption, who has risen from the grave, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for those who are His. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.